If you'll take your Bibles and stand with me as we read God's Word and turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 15. We'll never know the holiness of God until we look into His Word. And so let's read Judges chapter 15 and learn a little bit about anger management today. Judges chapter 15. And after a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and he took torches and turned the foxes tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain as well as the vineyards and olive groves. When the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timite, because he has taken his, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Now the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi. The men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? So they answered, We have come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he has done to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to arrest you that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Then Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him, saying, No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand. And we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire. And his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And so it was, when he had finished speaking, that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramoth-Lehi. Then he became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank. And his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore he called its name in Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel twenty years in the days of the Philistines. Let's pray. Father, we are always amazed at the amazing stories that you have in your word. And so we pray today that the lessons, the life lessons that are found in this story are found in the life of Samson, that you would apply them to our hearts and minds, that you would use our pastor and that your spirit would be upon him, but your spirit would be upon our hearts as well, that we would be open and eager to hear where we need to confess Repent and align ourselves more in keeping with your gracious and sovereign character. We thank you, Lord, for this privilege to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris, for reading our scripture. 
appreciate that. And some of you may have been with us for the last two weeks. Some of you may, this perhaps is your first Sunday. And what we are doing, we're going through a new series on the life of Samson. Kind of what we're calling a man of weakness, but also a man of great strength. In fact, uh, in the passage that Chris read for us, um, two of these stories are some of the more familiar stories of Samson. He's one of the best known heroes in all the Bible. Almost everybody knows something about Samson. And what I like about Samson is uh, he, he's a guy that's rather easy to relate to, rather easy to identify with. Not because we're bu- a bunch of strong, buff men. Uh, at least I know that's the case not with me. Uh, but because of his ups and his downs, his flaws, and uh, we can relate to that a little bit. We can see ourselves in him. In fact, uh, I like how one person has described it. There's a little bit of Samson in all of us. And there's a whole lot of Samson in most of us, and that is so true. And that's why we are taking some time to go through the life of Samson, because we want to discover some life lessons from this flawed hero that God has put in the Bible. Now, the key question when you study the life of Samson is, at least one of the key questions is, well, how did this man who had it all lose it all? Because that's what we began to look at in the very first chapter of Judges. Judges chapter 13, or I should say the chapter that introduces the life of Samson. is uh, We see his beginning in Judges 13 and how Samson started with it all. And then in chapter 14, he begins to lose it all. It's one dumb decision after another. Now, who can say, been there, done that? Don't raise your hand. Uh, I know some of us can, if not all of us can say that, been there, done that, with some dumb, stupid decisions. And that's why we can relate to Samson. But here's a guy who had it all, and he began to lose it all. In fact, in his book, Hearts of Iron, Feet of Clay, Gary Endrick tells an illustration that brings Samson's life into perspective for us. Several years ago, there was a news story about 300 wells that were found marooned on a beach. In fact, Jeff is going to bring, bring up a picture of this. And they came in too close, and when the tide went out, the wells became trapped in shallow water. Sadly, before they could get the wells moved, all 300 wells, wells died. It was a great mystery until marine biologists discovered that the 300 wells had met their death because they were chasing, get this, sardines. Chasing sardines. Have you ever seen sardines? Have you ever eaten sardines? They come in that little box, you peel back the top, and they're real small little fish. They're kind of tasty, put them on crackers, but sardines are small. I mean, do you know how small sardines are and how big a well is, especially in comparison to a sardine? But even a sardine can bring a well to its death if the well keeps chasing it long enough. That's the story of Samson. That's the parable of Samson's life. He was like a a mammoth well chasing sardines. He was a man of enormous resources who was wasted his life chasing what he didn't need in his life. He was finally beached by his pursuit of the sardine of sexual pleasures. In fact, we'll get into that story next Sunday. And also the sardine of self-centeredness because much of his flaws centered right on him. We've come, when we come to Judges 15, what we see in this chapter is the pattern of squandered resources continuing in his life. Even though Samson seems to experience some rather impressive victories. In fact, we're going to see two of them as well. Awesome victories, amazing victories for God. Now, there are four things that make Samson's life rather interesting, rather intriguing. Love and sex is one, and revenge and violence. We're already past the love and sex, but don't worry, we'll come back to it again, I promise, next week in Judges 16. Today we're going to see how an angry man gets even. Chris termed it anger management, which Samson never really learns in his life. Which brings us to another key to understanding the life of Samson. Notice this in your notes about an angry man getting even. 
I want you to see and understand that Samson, the deliverer, that was his purpose in life, his God-ordained purpose. He never fights a battle for God's honor. That's rather interesting because he fights a lot of battles. He's in a lot of conflicts with the Philistines. And he never fights one of these battles for God's honor, but only for his own revenge against the Philistines. That's something to keep in mind as we go through this chapter here. The passion to get even takes center stage in Samson's life. In fact, his life motto is found in verse 11 of Judges 15. In fact, go there and see it. You see it at the very end of that verse where Samson basically says, Hey, as they did to me, so I've done to them. You know any people that carry that life motto? We know several people. It tends to be the motto of a lot of people in our world today. They what did to me, so I'm going to do it back to them. Samson's battles with the Philistines were always motivated by personal revenge rather than God's purpose as a deliverer of Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. And so Judges 15 begins to unfold kind of like a three-act drama of rage and revenge. And so that's how we're going to look at this story today. If you can think of it in that way, three acts that we will see with Samson's life here in Judges 15. Act number one is Samson's personal revenge. Samson's personal revenge, act one. Now, Let's back up a little bit at the tail end of Judges 14. And if you remember, who could blame Samson for leaving Tenma in a huff when his bride shared the secret of his riddle with those Philistine men? His bride, uh, best men, if you will, his bridegrooms. Burning with anger, Samson went up to his father's house, which means he basically left his bride standing at the altar. Samson is now angry. And he wants nothing to do with this marriage. And so Samson's bride was given to the best man. Now, you've got to kind of put yourself in the father of the bride's shoes here for a moment. He's saying to himself, I don't think Samson's coming back. I don't think he's ever coming back. And so he looks at the best man and basically says, do you want her? And Samson's not the only guy with good eyesight. So the best man says, sure, I'll take her. And all he takes her big time. They get married and they think they're going to live happily ever after. But no, Samson changes his mind. He decides now that he still wants his wife after all. Although he walked out on his bride, Samson still considered her to be his wife. And he now thinks that he can come back whenever he wants to claim his new wife. Kind of sounds like a man, doesn't it? Sure it does. After his temper cooled, during the time of the wheat harvest, we're told, Samson returns to Timnah, but he does something kind of odd to you and I. He returns with a young goat as a peace offering. You say, what is the deal with that? Well, this young goat is simply the ancient equivalent of a box of chocolates or a dozen roses. Basically, he's coming to give her a present. He's trying to patch things up with her. He clearly expects to resume his relationship with her. When he arrives at her house, he says to her father, let me in. I'm going to visit my wife's room. Now, that terminology, let me tell you, we all know Samson's not going up there to have a prayer meeting with his wife. He's not going to the upper room of the house to do that. He's wanting to get up close and personal with his new wife. But the father says, no, you can't go up there, Samson. And at that moment, Samson now learns the shocking truth. His bride is married to the best man. The father quickly tries to make a deal with Samson when he says in verse 2, Hey, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. In other words, what the father is saying, Listen, the older sister is already taken. Why don't you just take the younger one? She's better looking after all. Now, that we can't fathom that in our day and age, but that's the way it was back then in those marriage customs. But Samson would have nothing to do with it. Let me tell you, if he had been angry before, he was furious now. So Samson said to them in verse 3, This time I shall be blameless. Kind of implies that he himself believes that his rage against the Philistines in killing those 30 men down in Ashkelon to repay the debt 
He didn't consider himself maybe blameless in that situation. But this time he says, I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. He had every intention of harming them. In other words, Samson is going to get serious about getting even with the Philistines. He does two things to do that. Notice it. First of all, Samson avenges his ruined marriage now. He gets even by avenging his ruined marriage. Samson turned his fury on the Philistines. Let me tell you, he hit him where it hurt. He punched him in the stomach. And his revenge was cold and it was calculated. Now, what happens next is rather amazing. I've heard this story a thousand times since I was a toddler. And it's one of the most amazing stories in all the Bible about Samson. He caught 300 foxes or jackals and he tied their tails together in pairs. Now, the reason I say foxes or jackals is because the Hebrew word for foxes here can mean either foxes or jackals. You say, what's the difference? Well, jackals run in packs, while foxes are solitary animals. So more than likely, what he caught was jackals. If you want to say foxes, that's fine. doesn't change the meaning of the story. In other words, he then tied a torch to each pair of the tails, lit the torch, and then he set them loose in the Philistines' wheat fields. And then I can just imagine Samson kind of stepping back, watching it, and laughing hysterically. I got my revenge. Taking it all in. Samson was getting much more than he, than he bargained for, though, because verse 5 tells us Samson burned up the Philistines' wheat shocks, which was basically wheat which is already cut, and the standing grain, which is wheat that had not yet been cut, as well as the vineyards and the olive groves. Now, there's only one thing you need to know about this particular story about the Philistines. They had three cash crops. Can you guess what they were? Wheat, olives, and grapes. What did Samson just do? He burned up all three. So what Samson did was a crippling blow to the Philistine economy. You could say, in other words, their stock market crashed because Samson did this during the harvest season, during the time of the harvest. Samson was getting so much more than just revenge. His personal vengeance was now the basis of a declaration of war against the Philistines. If Samson wanted to stir up the Philistines, let me tell you, he succeeded beyond his wildest imagination because when their harvest goes up in flames, everybody is directly impacted. When the Philistines ask, who did this? We are told in verse 6, Samson did it because the father of the bride gave her to the best man. So the Philistines, interesting here, what do they do? They went up and they burned her and her father to death, probably while they were still in the house. I told you the Philistines were not nice people. They were vengeful people as well. They were mean people. They were the hated enemy of the Israelites. But here's what's ironic about this. Maybe you've caught it already. You remember that Samson's bride, the Tenemite bride, initially betrayed Samson because the Philistines threatened to do what with her if she didn't tell, entice the secret of the riddle out of Samson and tell them the secret of the riddle. What did they threaten to do to her and her father? Burn her and her father. And what does she do? She entices the secret out of Samson and ends up getting burned anyway. Kind of ironic. The cycle of revenge has started. And now it was Samson's turn again. Because Samson now wants to avenge his wife's death. Samson does more than get revenge on the Philistines. Let me tell you, he slaughtered them. Notice what Samson says in verse 7. He says, since you would do a thing like this, in reference to the burning of her and her dad in their house, He says, I will surely take revenge on you, and then after that, I will cease. Samson's so naive. Like he can do that and just stop, I'm going to cease. The Philistines are not going to do anything, so I now don't have to retaliate. What a naive statement to make at the end there. In other words, Samson is saying, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you, but then I will stop. But he doesn't. 
seething with rage, Samson slaughtered a large number of Philistines. And get this, he does it with his bare hands. Notice how verse 8 describes this massacre. It says, so he attacked them. And I love how the Bible describes this hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Hip and thigh. Now, what in the world does that mean? It means Samson tore them apart limb from limb and piled them in a heap. You say, how in the world could he do that? Listen, the anointing of God was on him and he had the power of God. And if you remember back when he killed the lion, how did he do it? Remember how it's described how he killed the lion? Ripped it apart. He is simply doing to these Philistines what he had done already to a lion. An amazing thing here. But what I want you to see is his revenge. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see the cycle of revenge that's going on between Samson and the Philistines? The Philistines do something. And then Samson does something to get even. And then the Philistines, they have to retaliate and do something to get back at Samson. And then Samson does something back to get even. Only each time is getting more and more serious and more and more brutal. And that's what happens when you seek revenge in your, in your life. It perpetuates, it grows, and you have to top what somebody else has already done to you. You have to make sure that, that you're satisfied with the justice that you think you're inflicting on that person. And it's a never-ending cycle. In fact, notice this in your notes, the cycle of revenge. When you try to seek revenge for the wrongs done to you, listen, you set in motion a never-ending cycle of revenge. That's why revenge belongs to the Lord. We get on the treadmill of revenge and it becomes so hard to get off. That's why Romans twelve nineteen, And in the English Standard Version, it says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Listen, the only way to get off the treadmill of revenge is not to seek revenge in the first place. And the only way that we will choose not to seek revenge in the first place is when we trust God enough to do the justice. You see, a person who takes revenge is basically saying with their actions, I don't trust God to deal with that person who has hurt me. It speaks volumes about your beliefs and about your trust in God as judge and the one who hands out the justice whether he does it in this life or the next life. And so, do you question is, do you trust God enough to let go of your revenge or your vengeance and leave it to God to deal with the issue there? Not to seek it to begin with. You say, well, what do I do, though? If I don't seek revenge, then what am I supposed to do? It's simple, but it's hard. We do what Jesus did. You say, well, what did Jesus do? Well, he tells us in the book of Luke. Look at it in your notes. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, But I tell you who hear me, which today is you and I, love your enemies. Well, we could stop right there, couldn't we? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. Folks, listen to me. You can either seek revenge on your own, which is the world's way, or you can take your Christ-like responsibility, and it's God's way. And when you choose God's way, you are leaving the justice to God. You are leaving vengeance to Him. And while you're thinking about this, let me ask you, do you think, because it comes down, do you think God is capable enough? Do you think he's big enough to be the judge and do the justice? Or do you think, I know better than God, I can do it better than God, I'm going to take what he says is mine and I'm going to claim it for myself and I'm going to 
take out vengeance on my enemies. Listen, Jesus turns that model upside down. He turns the world's model and what Samson says upside down. And he gives us this Christ-like responsibility that we are to bless those who persecute us and to pray for those who mistreat us. Now, I realize God is using Samson here to destroy the Philistines. He's using Samson here to set his people free. However, don't miss the issue here, the point that, that Samson was going about it in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. But as we've already seen, God will still accomplish His purpose even in spite of us. And that's what God is doing here. God was using Samson, even though he was doing it in the wrong way for the wrong reasons, to accomplish his purpose to start a war with the Philistines so that Samson would begin to deliver them out of the hands of the Philistine oppression. So what does Samson do next after getting even with the Philistines? Well, verse 8 tells us he hides in a cave in the hill country of Judah, which brings us to Act 2. In Act 2, we see Samson's amazing victory. His amazing victory. We pick up the story in verse 9. Look what it says. Now the Philistines went up, encamped in Judah, and deployed themselves against Lehi. The Philistines finally realized something. Man, we got to get rid of this guy. We got to eliminate the problem. We have to eliminate Samson. And so they mounted a major search and destroy mission into Judah. The Philistines' invasion into Judah, let me tell you, it didn't help Samson's popularity with his own people, who sadly were content to submit to their enemy and accept the status quo. You see, instead of seeing Samson as their deliverer, the Judeans, the Israelites, if you will, his own people considered him a troublemaker. Now, I understand it is difficult to be a leader if you have no followers. In fact, we could almost say if you have no followers, you are not a leader if nobody's following, right? And so much of the problem with the people not wanting to follow Samson lay with Samson. Remember, he's already lost his integrity as a leader when he decided in chapter 14 to start pursuing what he didn't need. But the most striking thing this passage reveals to us is the spiritual condition of God's people here, the people of Judah, the Israelites. Now, before Samson makes donkeys of the Philistines, I want you to see that the Judeans accommodated the enemy. The Judeans accommodated the enemy out of fear and compromise. In verse 10, the Judeans sent some of the men of Judah to the Philistines to ask them, man, why, why have you come to fight us? What's the problem? And the Philistines answered, hey, we've come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he's done to us. And when the men of Judah heard that the Philistines had come only to capture and kill Samson, well, they're like, uh, wow, let's make a deal. Can we make a deal with you guys? And what they did is they made a deal, all right. They offered to do the enemy's work for them by capturing Samson themselves. So they gathered 3,000 men. You could say an army of 3,000 people. And they went down to the cave in the Rock of Edom, where Samson was hiding out to capture him. Which, that's an interesting thing in and of itself. Like, they're really going to capture Samson. After all he's done, he's the guy with all the power. He's only already killed. He's killed a lion. He's killed 30 men of Ashlon. Like, they're going to capture him, which is an interesting thought. But it's also, isn't it interesting, that it took 3,000 men to make them feel safe about capturing one of their own men. Listen to their cowardly words to Samson in verse 11. They come to Samson in this rock and they say, Listen, do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this thing you've done to us? Now, what in the world is happening to the men of Judah here? I mean, they are called to be God's people. And now they're coming to Samson and saying to him, Oh, Samson, don't you know the Philistines rule over us? Listen, they have iron, we have bronze. We're going to get killed by them. Samson, what are you doing? Are you a crazy man? 
Now, those questions that they asked Samson in and of themselves vividly illustrate that it is so possible. It is very possible for believers like you and us here today to get to the place in our lives where, where we prefer slavery to freedom. That is, our slavery and bondage to sin instead of freedom in God. Where we compromise, where compromise is more comfortable than our commitment to God. And that's exactly where the people of God are in this story. You see, they could have seen this as an opportunity. An opportunity to rally around God's man, which was Samson and his leadership, but they have no interest in defending a fellow Israelite or taking any risk toward freedom. Instead, they are so thoroughly resigned to the status quo. They're so thoroughly absorbed in their compromise that they just, let's punt Samson out. Let's get rid of him as the problem instead of dealing with the real problem. Now, three simple words describe what happens here when God's people, quote, sell out the compromise. In verse 10, you know what you see in verse 10 is intimidation. The Israelites were scared to death of the Philistines. In fact, they were so frightened that they approached Samson asking him to surrender. And Samson voluntarily does. In verse 11, we see accommodation. The Israelites were so comfortable with the status quo that their courage and desire for freedom was now gone. And then in verse 12, we see cooperation. In verse 12, in my opinion, is one of the saddest verses in the whole story when they come and they tell Samson, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Israel, God's people, whose side are you on? The people of God are now doing the enemy's dirty work for them. What a tragic picture of spiritual decline of the whole nation. Samson's own compromise has now caused him to make enemies on both sides. He has enemies with the Philistines and now his own people want him dead too. And yet Samson still makes donkeys out of the Philistines. It's an amazing story. When Samson defeated the enemy with the jawbone of a donkey. What we see in verses 13 through 17 is probably the pinnacle of Samson's faith. He's on the bottom, but now he's starting to rise to the top. And it all begins at the end of verse 12 when Samson says to the men of Judah, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. They reply in verse 13, No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. You know what they're saying? Samson, we won't kill you. We'll just let the Philistines kill you. And oh, by the way, we'll pray for you as they're doing it. But I want you to see how graciously Samson treats his countrymen here. Like I said, I think we're at the top, the pinnacle of his faith at this point in his life. You see, Samson, we know, could have easily resisted these countrymen, these 3,000 men of Judah. He could have put up a fight. He could have destroyed them. But he doesn't. He lets them bind him and bring him to the enemy. You say, why is that? Because I think Samson still had a heart for his own country and for his own men. And he didn't want to take out Jewish blood and kill his own men. He still understood these are the people of God and the Philistines are the enemy. He had every right to be furious with those traitors, but instead he did everything to keep from attacking them. And so here he comes. His hands are bound with two new ropes and he's walking toward the Philistines. This was the ultimate humiliation, folks. Tied and handed over to the enemy by his own people. No wonder verse 14 says that when the Philistines saw Samson coming in the distance, what did they do? I mean, they broke out in a triumph, a victory. They're like shouting hallelujah, jumping up and down. You would have thought the Chiefs were winning the Super Bowl the way they were going on. They think they have finally got Samson. But what we see next is one of the most awesome examples of God's power ever displayed by man. Look what verse 14 says. 
I love it. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire. And his bonds broke loose from his hands. Keep reading. It gets better in verse 15. Look what it says. And then he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it, and killed how many men? How many? A thousand men with it. What an amazing victory. Get this, one man plus the anointing of God kills 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Samson was so overjoyed, he began to sing and shout his own praises. Oh, that's Samson, isn't it? He's into boasting. The problem is, listen, his song makes no mention of his God. Verse 16 records his song. Look at it. He says, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. In other words, you know how he played out this amazing victory? He would take a jawbone and he would kill five or six men, throw them in a heap, go kill five or six more men, throw them in a heap, kill five or six more men, throw them in a heap. When you kill a thousand men and you pile them up, what do you have? You got one big heap. And he's bragging about it. Listen, Samson was fully entitled to sing and celebrate. When God does amazing things in our lives, folks, you realize we ought to celebrate. You remember our Shama campaign? The, the amazing victory that God gave to our church when we went beyond and above our goal of raising 300000 We raised 425000 for this renovation project. And what did we do? We celebrated. Absolutely, we ought to. And we should. But not without giving God the victory. And that's the problem here with Samson. He was not entitled to experience God's amazing power and give him no credit. And so after singing his own praises, Samson threw the jawbone away and he named the place Ramath-Lehi, which means hill of the jawbone. Again, the problem is when Samson names the place of victory, Ramoth Lehi, he commemorates himself, but not his God. Samson just doesn't get it. It isn't about him. It isn't about his revenge or his achievements. Listen, it is all about God. It's about declaring God's glory and making His name famous not only among His own people who needed it more than anything at that time, but also making God's name famous and declaring God's glory to the Philistines and the nations around the Israelites at that time. And that's where Samson missed the point. And oh, did he miss it big. Therefore, his victory, it has no power of endurance in his life as we will soon find. Samson's three-act drama is almost over. But there's one last little short act that comes out in the end of this chapter. One final act, Act 3, Samson's greatest prayer. After this amazing victory over the Philistines, as you can only imagine, Samson is exhausted. And let me tell you, he's, quote, dying of thirst. So he cries out to God in verse 18. Look at it. He says to God, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of this thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? And that word uncircumcised is simply a reference to the Philistines. Now, what's interesting, this is the first time and the only time, except right before his death, we hear Samson pray. Just think about that. This is God's man, God's judge. A judge over Israel. And it's the only time we hear him pray, except at the very end of his life. Samson's greatest prayer comes after his greatest victory. And yet, and yet, Samson's prayer is a mixture of both faith in God, great faith in God, and self-centered complaint. You see, Samson seems to be giving God credit for his victory. In fact, it's interesting. He even calls himself what? God's servant. 
Samson recognizes, I am God's man. I'm God's ordained. I have this power because of God. I'm called to be a Nazarite. I'm called to lead Israel. I'm your servant, God. But while this, and what's amazing about this in and of itself, folks, because don't overlook this, because right now we're fo- we sent, we, we, it's so easy to focus on all the flaws of Samson, and it's easy to because he has so many. But this prayer, this prayer, this short little prayer reveals that beneath the carnality of his life, beneath the compromise of his life, there was a bedrock of faith in Samson's life as well. It's down deep, and he doesn't go there very often. And yet, when you weigh through his compromise and carnality, you find in this prayer the glimpse and the hope of his faith in God. You wonder why he's listed in Hebrews chapter 11 as a man of faith? God calls him that. This is part of the answer right here. But while his prayer reflects great faith, it is typical of Samson in that it turned quickly into self-centered complaint against God. He acknowledges the Lord, but he's also complaining against Him when he says he's going to, quote, die of thirst. Listen to simple, Lord, I'm thirsty, please help me, would have been appropriate. Once again, it's all about Him. But let's at least give Samson the benefit of the doubt he does pray. He does pray. He does go to his Lord. And he does ask him for water to meet his need. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was God, I would be so reluctant to answer his prayer. Would you? I mean, why? why would, what would motivate you to answer Samson's prayer about now? After all, he's, this is a guy who had everything and he's losing it because he's pursuing something he doesn't need in life. And yet, you've got to be impressed with God's grace in his life. Look at this. First of all, God supplied Samson with water. That's amazing to me. That is amazing to me. Because let me tell you, when my boys come to me and ask for something, after they have, well, been demons for the last two hours, fighting and arguing, you know how much motivation I had to give them what they want and ask for? Like that much. And here God is, in His mercy and grace, supplying Samson with water. Man, what an amazing father we have. Verse 19 says, So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out and he drank, and his spirit returned and he revived. After Samson is refreshed, refreshed, he names the spring in Hakor. You know what that means? The spring of the caller. Samson may as well have called that well Samson's well and charged 20 bucks a person to come see it. In other words, the name of the spring memorializes the one who is praying rather than the God who is answering the prayer. Once again, Samson directed attention to the wrong place. And yet God is still gracious in his life because notice number two, God established Samson as judge after it's all said and done here in chapter 15. Verse 20 says, speaking of Samson, and he judged Israel for how many years? 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Now we have no other details of Samson's ongoing work as judge except that the Lord used Samson for 20 years as he began to fulfill his God-given purpose to deliver the Israelites out of the hands of the Philistines. Now, as we step back from this story, or many stories, this drama, this three-act drama in Samson's life, there's no doubt Samson is one flawed hero. When Samson sins, let me tell you, he really sins. He went down, 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 but then he begins to come up, and in the end, Samson wins an amazing victory for God. So what life lessons can we learn from our flawed hero this morning? There are many, but let me point out three of them as we close here. First of all, missed opportunities are often the result of spiritual compromise. 
Samson and the Israelites had a great opportunity to be free from the Philistines. Let me tell you, they missed it big time. Think about this with me. Get what they had. They had a leader with amazing God-given power. They had an army of 3,000 men. They had a God who promised to give them victory. And if they had recognized God's man and rallied around him, they could have went to war with the Philistines and won their freedom and God would have given it to them. But the people had become so degraded by compromise that instead of supporting Samson, they accused him of being a troublemaker. And what an opportunity for Samson this might have been for him as well. You know, you could write over Samson's life, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. Because after killing the thousand Philistines, Samson could have united the 3,000 men of Judah. He could have led them into war against the Philistines. Instead, all we hear from him is, I have slain a thousand men. I have slain a thousand men. And I prayed and water came out. Listen, who wants to follow that kind of leader? The 3,000 men of Judah must have gone away shaking their heads at what they had witnessed in Samson Remain a lone ranger instead of becoming a true leader of God's people. What a missed opportunity. Folks, listen to me. Spiritual compromise in my life and your life will always result in missed opportunities for God. Do you ever ask yourself, man, what am I missing out on? Because of my compromise something to think about the second life lesson we learn is god's anointing on an individual is not always his stamp of approval on a person's conduct exhibit a is samson on this one remember god's purpose for samson was to deliver israel out of the hands of the philistines and god's purposes will always be accomplished even in spite of our conduct and that's why god's long suffering can quote allow a person to act in an improper manner And yet God will still use that individual to accomplish his purpose. So remember this. Remember, don't confuse God's anointing on your life with his stamp of approval on your conduct. They are not the same. All we have to do is look at Samson. And then number three, our third life lesson is there is always hope for modern-day Samsons with God's grace. Woohoo! I love this one, right? There's always hope. What we see in Judges 15 is Samson's greatest victory and his greatest prayer. But do you know what the most amazing thing is out of all of this story we've seen this morning? Is that it comes at the end of a whole series of incredibly stupid decisions in Judges chapter 14. Samson pursued what he didn't need. And then he went on a rampage of revenge. And yet, and yet, because of God's grace, God still used him to achieve a great victory. And God still answered his prayer for water. And God still established him as a judge in Israel. Blows me away. And perhaps some of you are here this morning. And you look at your life and you know, man, I'm laboring under the burden of a long string of bad decisions, stupid moves, and broken relationships. Every time you think about surrendering your life to God, this little voice inside your head comes crying out to you and screaming, oh, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? You're no good. You're a fraud and you're a hypocrite. Look at your past. Listen, I've got great news for you. Your past doesn't have to hold you back. If you will come to Jesus, you will find forgiveness and you will find grace that is more than sufficient for your life. All you need to do is run to the cross. Seek the forgiveness that God offers you through Jesus Christ and you can find new life in Jesus. That's the grace of God. 
Remember, God supplied Samson with water. And it says he revived his spirit. He was revived physically with what God provided for him. And God will do the same thing with you. He will supply you with His forgiveness, with His love that's unconditional, with His mercy and grace, and most of all, with new life to revive your life for where you're at. Listen, your past doesn't have to hold you back. What I have found is what holds us back is us still tied to our past. But when we find forgiveness, that chain is cut. And we now have new life in Christ to move forward. If God did it for Samson, he can do it for you. With your heads bowed. And as we pray, and as we have a, just one chorus of a song, the praise team's going to come. And this is our time to respond. We've heard God speak to us through the life of Samson here. And now the question is, how do we respond? What should we do? What is God calling us to do? And perhaps some of you are here and you just need to run to the cross. You need to run to Jesus Christ. And you need to fess up and own up to some of your own stupidity of your life choices. And say, man, I've been, I've been going down the path of Samson. And whether it's in the area of revenge or fulfilling the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, it doesn't matter. Listen, God offers you forgiveness if you will come with in repentance of heart. He wants to offer you a new life in Christ. Perhaps you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is the time to respond to Him as well. Zach and the praise are going to sing one chorus, and as they do, let me encourage you. Use this time to respond to God. Cry out to Him. Pray to Him as He leads you. You can call me to 